Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. All right, if you have a Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will settle this morning and stare at this beautiful text, and as you're opening your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use, and if you don't own a Bible, use and keep one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you. We're taking a break out of our series through the letter to the Roman church, Romans, to consider the incarnation. We'll pick back up into Romans chapter 7 in January, and so as you're finding 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, we're just going to look at one verse, one of the most beautiful, concise, succinct statements of the gospel in all of the Bible, the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. As you're finding that, let me mention to you something very exciting and important in the life of our church. As you know, we've been mentioning it, Reynolds mentioned it again this morning about giving to the church plant. We are planting a church, Lord willing, Will Hawk is planting a church this mid-year of 2018, and as a result, to anticipate the void that will occur as Will leaves our staff to plant this new church mid-year next year, we have been behind the scenes looking for someone to come on staff and to replace Will and to minister to our youth, and it's been an extensive process. We've put lots of words out into different streams of seminaries and networks that we're part of and interviewed a few people and Uh, came to a decision about a month ago that we have found a brother to come on staff here to uh, eventually assume the role of youth pastor when Will plants the church. And so I'm happy to announce that we have hired Tyler Kirkpatrick, who is, you can see a picture of Tyler and his wife Chelsea, and their two sons, Max and Calvin. Tyler is originally from Ohio And most recently, he has been in Louisville, Kentucky, where he has been finishing up seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a wonderful institution that has, uh, kind of in our theological stream, has been a real blessing to us, and uh, is is sort of like a a real hub of great theology and young men training for ministry. Uh, Tyler has been a full-time student there at uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary, where he will graduate actually in in the spring of next year. Uh, but he's going to come earlier than that and join us. He will finish up his last few classes through distance education. He's also been a youth pastor at a church there locally and has worked uh, at the Southern Seminary uh, managing a big project of the seminary there. He's also, something that really attracted us to Tyler through the interview process, uh, has just a lot of real uh, theological depth and training, especially for a man as young as he is. He's been the intern for Al Moeller for the last couple of years, and those of you that are familiar with Al Moeller, he's the president of Southern Seminary, just one of the great theological minds of our time, and Tyler has been very close to him and learned from him. And Tyler also, this is something that has been very attractive to us, Uh, when Tyler graduated from high school before he went to undergraduate college in Cedarville University in Ohio, joined the Army Reserves, and was an enlisted MP in the Army, and was for about eight years, and actually was deployed to Afghanistan for a year. So he has a lot of real-world practical experience, and will be able to, I think, connect with many of the military families that are part of our church, and having been deployed himself, and then still having this rich theological education. 
He and his wife, Chelsea, along with their two boys, Max and Calvin, will be moving to Columbus in January, the beginning of January. In fact, they've rented a house uh, just in the neighborhood, kind of across the street, and so they'll be moving in January 3rd, and he will start working here on staff in the beginning of January, and the plan is for, for Tyler to shadow uh, Will for a, a, a period there in the, in the January, February timeframe, March, and to really learn the ropes and to get to know the youth and the youth leaders and the parents and the church at large. And then in the, the springtime, for there to be a transition where Tyler takes over the reins of the youth ministry while Will is still on staff here, having you know, mentored him and, and getting to know the church and the youth ministry. And that will give Will an opportunity to step away from any, any direct responsibility of pastoral ministry here at the church while he's still on staff to free him up for his last few months here at the church to really concentrate on uh, preparing the church plant, building the core team, and all of the many last-minute details that, that are needed as the church prepares to launch in, Lord willing, the summer, fall of 2018. So we're really excited about, about Tyler. Look, there's no replacing Will Hawk. He's one of a kind, but we think we have found a dear brother that knows the Lord well and is, is steeped in, in just good theology and has a heart for teenagers and ministry and the church uh, at large and has lots of life experiences that we think will be a wonderful blessing to our church. So we're, we're eager to introduce Tyler to you and his wife Chelsea and their two boys. We're eager to introduce to you to him in person at the beginning of January. In fact, we may need some help unloading their moving van like January 3rd. So let me just kind of put that. We'll send out more um, uh, uh, notes on that in the coming days. But praise God for his provision to us as we, as we grow as a church, as we send people off to do gospel ministry in our city, and uh, as we keep gospel ministry going here. Let me pray just for God's grace for this whole transition and even as, as for the message today as, as I preach Lord, we thank you for just how good you've been to us for, for the Hawk family and their incredible investment in our youth ministry and our children and teenagers over the years, this past decade. We thank you, Lord, for the, the heartbeat of the gospel on mission in our church where we don't want to just make it about us being as big as we can possibly be, but we want to we send people out and to plant new gospel churches. We want to help to revitalize churches in our area, Lord willing, in the years to come as well. And, and yet we want to continue to do faithful, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered ministry here. And so to that end, we thank you for what has happened here and what will continue to happen here by your grace. We thank you for leading us to Tyler Kirkpatrick and all of his experiences and the depth of his training and and the things that he is, has experienced as a young man and his wife and their children and their, just their family that you've led us to them. And we pray for their transition from Louisville to Columbus. We pray for their move. We pray for them settling into this church. So it would be a, a, just a faithful, fruitful, wonderful transition, not for the sake of our comfort or their comfort, but for the sake of ministry, for the sake of souls, for the sake of teenagers, for the sake of family, for the sake of the glory of the gospel in the local church. Lord, you've been so kind to us. 
now as we open your word and as we consider this beautiful truth of the incarnation again this Sunday, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, eternal things are on the line today, and I pray that you would be faithful. I know that you will. Help us see your truth and help us glorify you. Be glorified as we consider your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to use this text as a kind of launching pad to stare again at this, this wonderful truth that we've been speaking about, singing about for the last few weeks of the incarnation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read it again. For our sake, and I think clearly what Paul has in mind there is not all of humanity, but those that are trusting in Christ. For our sake, Christians, he, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I want us to think about this text and this truth of the incarnation in this context. I want us to think of the incarnation as an invasion. Now, as we've already alluded to, that's challenging in our culture. We're, we're awash in cultural symbols of a, of a soft, sort of eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes and rosy porcelain cheeks in a nativity scene marketed in the mall. And contrasted against that is this biblical picture of an invasion of a holy God into a broken world to not cuddle up next to fallen humanity, but to fight a war against sin, the devil, and death, and win that war and invade into our broken humanity for the sake of the glory of his name and the redemption of his people. Listen to how one author puts it in a book called The Incarnation of God. I, I love this quote as I was reading it this week. He says, We do not seek and find a reclusive God. He pursues and overtakes us in our rebellion. We do not perforate his unapproachable light. He penetrates our unsearchable darkness. We do not interrogate the Jesus of history to excavate the God of eternity. Rather, the infinite and eternal God storms space and time to confront us face to face in the face of Christ. In other words, man, that, that'll make you want to go Rocky Balboa on some steps in Philly. In other words, the incarnation is a holy invasion into this broken world for the purposes of redemption. So I want us to look at this text quickly and clearly, and then I want us to consider three results of the invasion of the incarnation. And then we have 
the wonderful privilege this morning after the message to see and hear the testimony of a brother, a member of our church who will be baptized as a proclamation of this glorious gospel that we will stare at this morning. Look at that first part of the sentence of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, that half sentence, it, it contains such enormous truth that, that we could spend a century of Sundays just considering that and never get to the bottom of it. But I want us to consider a question as we're thinking about the incarnation in the context of this verse. I want us to consider a question about this verse that I think, that I think if we think about it, we have to answer. And that question is, given the fact that Jesus is God the Son, eternally God the Son, became a man and then became, as this text says here, sin for us, even though he knew no sin, I think we have to wonder as we consider the incarnation what type of humanity, what type of manhood did Jesus assume? How human was Jesus? This one who knew no sin and in fact became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What type of humanity did Jesus assume? Well, through the centuries, the church has tried to answer this question faithfully. And in the first part of the history of the church, really the first 1,500 years or so as the church began to develop and began to sort of come underneath the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, the church, the Catholic Church, at one of their many councils, attempted to answer this question. And I think, I want to say this, I think they got it wrong, but I think that the motivation, the desire that they were trying to get at came from a good instinct. They were trying to preserve the sinlessness and the divinity of Jesus. And so the Catholic answer to what type of humanity Jesus assumed was that they said that Mary, his mother, and those of you that maybe have grown up Catholic or around a lot of Catholics would be familiar with this, they said that his mother Mary actually was, was born sinless. In fact, it's called the Immaculate Conception. Not the Immaculate Reception. That was Franco Harris in the mid-1970s in that incredible catch against the Oakland Raiders in the NFC Championship game. Not that. It's the Immaculate Conception. Meaning that Mary was somehow divinely conceived and the, the trail of human sin that taints all of us, by the way, right? We are all sinners because we're all children of Adam and Eve, we have all inherited the sin nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? All of us, all of us, come on, all of us. And so the problem theologically is, how is God the son, how will he actually become a real human and be untainted by the sin of humanity? Well, part of the answer is as well, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb and Mary. And so we kind of have, he doesn't, he doesn't assume or inherit the sin of his father because Joseph was not involved in the birth. But we still have this problem with Mary. Mary, is, is, she's a person. And so how can we, how can the sin that would just transfer from a mother to her son, how can we block that? And the Catholics, I think with good intention, 
came up with this idea of the immaculate conception. The problem is, is that Mary was not sinless, and there's no, there's no scriptural evidence for the sinlessness of Mary. In fact, Mary herself even calls Jesus her Savior, and so how can Mary need to be saved unless she has a sin nature like us? And then the general Protestant answer, I think, is also kind of wrong. The general kind of answer that many people that would just be just sort of everyday Christians would believe that Jesus assumed a kind of pre-fallen, Adam-like, before-the-fall humanity. And so Jesus is a kind of, of, of pre-fall human. The problem with that is, is it keeps a distance. It, it's, a, it's a gap between us and Jesus. And listen to what the Protestant reformers said. They actually didn't believe that. They, 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 they disagreed with what the Catholic Church, and they would probably disagree with what most American Christians would believe in, in, in sort of Jesus assuming this kind of pre-fall, clean humanity existence. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this very thing. And I could just see him just sort of saying it sort of antagonistically with a little bit of an edge, like Luther would say as my favorite angry German. He says this, the scholastic doctors argue about whether Christ was born from sinful or clean flesh or whether from the foundation of the world God preserved a pure bit of flesh from which Christ was to be born. I reply, therefore, that Christ was truly born from true and natural flesh and human blood and was which was corrupted by original sin in Adam. Listen to this, because Luther's almost getting heretical here but in such a way that it could be healed. Luther goes on to say in that same sermon that there's a mystery here that Jesus actually entered into fallen flesh, broken flesh, as the Bible says in Romans 8, the likeness of sinful flesh, but he did it with the preserving protection of God. Why is this so important? And you may say, Brad, this is just too academic, too theological for me. No, 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 no. Stop it, first of all. You need to know this. Why is this so important? It's so important, friends, because we have a Savior who became, we have a God who became a real man who identifies with us. There is no gap between the incarnate Jesus and you and me. He is a Savior who draws near to his people. But let's not believe it because Martin Luther said it. Let's believe it because the Scriptures say it. Listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Listen to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And what are the consequences of that? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He is a sympathetic high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter two. We read this last week, verse 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might a, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, this beautiful word, meaning bearing the wrath of God personally and turning it into favor through his sacrificial death. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, do you feel, you know what sin does? <laughs> and I, I know this. I, I know this because I feel it in my own life. I know this because I see it in your lives when we sit in my office and pray. And I see it in the scripture, sin, sin separates us, right? It, it breaks things. It, it kills things. It, it distances us from, from God and from his people. And it makes us feel like we're unredeemable and unsavable because it makes us feel like there's a gap between us and God. And, and in one sort of theological sense, that's true. Sin separates. But the, but the beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus became a man just like us and invaded our separation and drew near to us. But in a way, and this is where the mystery and the beauty and the miracle of it comes, he became just like us, but in a way, sinless. A perfect, weak human. I don't know how all that works out, but I see it in the text, and I see it as, as good for us to see and dwell on. Jesus becomes the perfect man and draws near to us and becomes like us. And it may, it may, it may just cause you to wonder, like, why, why, why would God even allow the sin for the fall in the first place? I was sitting with a brother this week, um, and I was so... So encouraged by his perspective on his life. And he had a very difficult time in the last few years with sin. And now he's on the other side of that sin through God's grace and his repentance and restoration to the people that he loves. And he said this week in my office profoundly that in a strange way, He's actually thankful for what he went through, not that he would want to do it again, and not that he doesn't have regret over his sin, but he's actually thankful for what he went through because God has even used, used that as a kind of means of grace to be one of the things that drew, drew him nearer. And so he, his conclusion was, I would not be where I am today with the Lord were it not for that. <laughs> now, friends, that's sovereign grace. Do you see what the power is in seeing that perspective? That, that is looking back on your life, realizing that, look, look, God's not culpable for my sin. I shouldn't have done that. That was, that's something to be brokenhearted and repentant over, but yet God is so sovereign and so good and so out in front of and so outside of time that he is able to use all things and as Romans 8.28 says, work them together for our good. <laughs> Friends, mm, that, 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 that'll, that's, that's good. That's, I won't take the time to go through it 
But one of my favorite things I've ever meditated on in the history of the church is what the old theologians have called the happy fall, Felix Copa, a Latin phrase meaning Felix Copa. Felix, Latin phrase meaning happy, culpa, meaning guilt, happy guilt, happy fall. And the old theologians looked at the truth of the gospel and they saw that Adam, in his pre-fall existence, was able not to sin, but he was able to sin. In fact, he did sin and plunged all of us into separation from God. But the final state of mankind will be a better state than Adam had because we will, not only will we be able not to sin, but we will actually be unable to sin. And so, oh, this is, oh man, the final state of man will be better than the first state of man. And the conclusion of the old theologians was is that we are happier because of the fall because it ends up in a better state than what would have happened otherwise. Put that in your Christmas pipe and smoke it. Friends, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In this great grand plan of redemption, God orchestrates a system in which he creates a humanity that he allows to fall for the display of his glory through the invasion of the incarnation of his son, And look closely at what the text says about what God the Father did to the Son, who he made sin for us. So the real human Jesus lives a perfect life and willingly lays down his life on the cross and God treats him as if he had committed all the sins that all of us have ever committed. So on the cross, Jesus becomes sin, God sees him as the culprit for our sin. And because Jesus is not only a perfect law-abiding holy human, he is the infinitely holy son of God, he has enough, more than enough holiness to satisfy the wrath of God against all of the sins of all of the people that would ever trust in him. And so on the cross, Jesus is actually becoming the sacrificial substitute for us. He's becoming us on the cross so that we could become like him in our resurrection. And that's the investal war of the incarnation. That's what the little precious baby Jesus grew up to do according to the infinite plan of God. And on the cross, God lays the sin of his people on him, and his wrath is satisfied by his perfect perfection in life. Why? If that were all there was to the gospel and the incarnation, it would be wonderful enough. But why does that happen? Well, he continues in the second part of the sentence, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the good news of the incarnation is not merely through Jesus' real human life and sacrificial death is our sin removed and atoned for, that's taken away, but now the righteousness of the Son of God is given to us. So he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. 
And why is this so important? Because we need more than just the removal of sin to stand before our holy creator God. We need righteousness. And Jesus doesn't just take away our sin in the incarnation and his death. He gives us his righteousness. Listen to what John Calvin says in the Institutes about this wonderful exchange that happens on the cross. He says, this is the wonderful exchange which... Out of his measureless benevolence, he has made with us that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him, that by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us, that accepting our weakness, He has strengthened us by his power that receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us that taking the weight of our iniquity upon us, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Did did you hear that last line? If If you're in Christ, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Um, I'm going to embarrass him, but he, what's he going to do? Yesterday, uh, Kwame Ajaman, who read our call to worship, graduated with his bachelor's degree from Columbus State. Praise God. We're very proud of him. Yeah. And uh, he was clothed in one of those graduate robes, right? And he was conferred a degree. And at that moment, he, I think there was some announcement from the president of the university saying that he had all the rights and privileges of somebody with a bachelor's degree from Columbus State. And he was wearing the graduation robe. And as I was sitting there celebrating with Jasmine and also doing last-minute sermon prep, I thought, ah, that's a picture of the gospel. We're we're robed, right? Now, the the Kwame that that got up that morning before he had that robe on is, is, is in many ways the same Kwame that walked off of that stage, but there's a pronouncement, there's a proclamation, there's a declaration from the president of the university, and likewise, in a a much grander sense, when we become a Christian, we we still struggle. We still still have to plow through this life. We still have to to fight. But there's a a change. There's there's an announcement in heaven. There's a legal declaration. There's There's a proclamation that this person who was not righteous is now righteous. And here's where the analogy breaks down, not because of anything that we have done, although Kwame studied and got his degree, but the difference of the gospel is not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And now, now listen, 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 struggling sinner who's believing in Jesus, who doesn't know whether or not they're going to be able to bear the weight of their sin. The gospel doesn't just remove your sin, it clothes you, it changes God's posture towards you so that now when God sees you, he sees you through the lens of the righteous robe of Christ, which is yours. 
Now, now, friends, that does not mean that there's not sanctification and mortification and a whole lot of fighting that we need to do. We're going to get to that in a second. But know that God's posture towards you has changed because of the invasion of the incarnation. And for those that are in Christ, he has robed us in the righteousness of his son Christ. Praise God. So we agree with you, John Calvin. He has clothed us with righteousness. We end with this, three results of the invasion of the incarnation. Three results. And this is what I wanted to get to in thinking about our fight with remaining sin. Number one, it, it fuels our obedience to the Lord. Let's not, let's not put so much emphasis on the free grace of God in the gospel that we miss the empowering grace of God after we've believed the gospel. Rightly understanding how salvation works fuels the work of our sanctification. When we see this gospel rightly, it should not cause us to fall back into passivity, but it should actually fuel our desire to fight the remaining sin that exists in us. Think of, think of becoming a Christian, and this is how the Bible presents it. It is a new birth. And although, as in the chapter that we read from, we have been made a new creation in Christ, we are, we are like babies. And just as a little human baby that is born physically, within that baby exists all, all that is necessary, all the cells, all the DNA that will eventually produce mature adulthood in that child. Likewise, when we, when we believe, when Christ rescues us, when he makes us alive, when he, when he confers, when he takes away our sin and confers his righteousness, imputes his righteousness to us, in that moment, we could never be more loved by God at any point. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves more acceptable to God because Jesus has done that. But... Rightly understanding that, then as we are in this kind of spiritual infancy, when we see the beauty of the gospel, what God has done in the invasion of Christ the Son into the likeness of sinful flesh, the effect that it should have on us if we truly see it rightly is it should melt our heart and put us on a pathway of ever-increasing obedience and ability to fight sin. This is what, what Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says. Listen to this text. It says, uh, this is one of the most important verses for sanctification in the whole Bible. It says, for those whom he foreknew, meaning Christians, he also predestined, meaning he determined their future destination. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Look closely at what that verse is saying. 
is saying that when God saves somebody, and I think that happens in eternity past through the mechanism, through the plan of God of his foreloving, foreknowing that person, predestining them, notice what the end state of that is in the second half of the verse. He promises, he guarantees that that person will be conformed, changed, transformed into the image of the perfect one, Jesus. That that verse is saying a lot more than just about the sovereignty of God and salvation. It is guaranteeing the process of sanctification for any true believer. Do you see that? It is saying that there is an unstoppable force of sovereign grace that has now invaded your heart through the Holy Spirit that has taken up residence in you. And no matter, no matter the difficulty of the battles that lie ahead, God is guaranteed, if you're a true child of God, that you will be conformed into the image of Christ. I use the analogy... When we were going through Romans 8 a couple years ago, and by the way, we're going to get to go through Romans 8 again. Oh, I can't wait. I use the analogy on this verse of, think of a child prodigy who is the best violin player in the world as, he, as an adult. And then go back into that child's early childhood before he even picked up the violin. And imagine, and this comes from the book Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney, this beautiful picture being fuel for us, for our sanctification. Imagine that we could, to that child, before he even picks up the violin, pull back time, space, and eternity, and an angel would say to that little child, you are going to become the best violin player in the world. That's going to happen. Now what, what should that produce rightly in that child? Oh, well, great. So now I can go eat Cheetos and watch cartoons. No, if that child sees his guaranteed future, what it does is it fuels for that child a desire to practice and, listen to this, become who he's guaranteed to be. And that's what the gospel does for us. It tells us that God is for us, not against us, and it fuels our obedience and helps us to fight sin. Friends, there's, 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 there's so much power in that truth, especially for those of us that are battling, which is all of us, with remaining disobedience. When we see that Jesus became like us, and he gave us his righteousness, and he filled us with his spirit, and he's given us his word, and he's given us his people, it gives us confidence to know that greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. Secondly, it fortifies us in the face of trials and troubles. It fortifies us in the face of trials and troubles. If our greatest need, think about this just conceptually and logically, if our greatest need has been met, which is rescue from the wrath of a holy God through Jesus' incarnation and resurrection, if our greatest need has been met, then what can man do to us? The problem is, is that we all have gospel amnesia and we think that our real needs are the temporary things of this life. 
But when we hear the gospel afresh and we read it again and we see what our greatest need is, we are reminded that if our greatest need, which is right standing before a holy God, has been met, then what else can trouble me? It fortifies us in the face of trials and troubles and makes us realize that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give, him up, give us all things? And as Kwame or Will or somebody said earlier in the, church, in the service, Jesus, in fact, is even interceding for us right now. So we can face cancer and sin and financial trouble, and terrorists, and political turbulence, knowing that the gospel promises us eternal life with him, not in 80 comfortable years. And it fortifies us to endure this life to the glory of God. And then finally, when we see this incarnation rightly, it frees us to be humble and gracious to others. It frees us to be humble and gracious to others. Our culture trains us, I think. I think there's a, a kind of discipleship that is always going on in culture. Our culture trains us, disciples us, to treat each other harshly. Just turn on the news in the morning or in the evenings. It's trying to sell us something. And the best way to sell something is to create a demographic that is being wronged, that is being threatened, that needs protection. And our culture is intent on making us feel this way because when we feel scared and threatened by all these temporal things, scared animals, when they're backed into a corner, attack. And they buy something. Or they watch that channel and the ratings go up. But when we realize that actually the greatest threat has been satisfied, and the real need is not our way of thinking winning the day, but the glory of Christ being exalted to a world, it frees us to see other people that we may be diametrically opposed to for a variety of reasons here on this earth culturally. It frees us to see them not as opponents or threats, but as people in need of the very grace that we have received. Listen to what Paul says, and we'll end with this in the chapter before what we just read in 2 Corinthians, the, the, the preceding verses before verse 21. Listen to what he says the effect of this gospel should have on the lives of Christians. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Listen to verse 14. For the love of Christ, not political party. For the love of Christ, not socioeconomic demographics. 
for the love of Christ, not our temporary ethnicities. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen to verse 16, what his conclusion is. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, they're not, they're not this temporary demographic categorization that, that this broken world wants us to make them out to be. They are a person who needs Jesus. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then again, our verse, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The incarnation was an invasion for our sake. And it frees us to fight sin, to face trouble, and to love others. Let's pray. Father, as we see this gospel invasion proclaimed in the baptism of our brother Brian, we're so grateful for this truth. We need this truth. We need more than a nativity scene in the mall, baby Jesus. We need the victorious king. We need to see him fresh and right and biblically. And we need to be empowered and fueled and strengthened by this truth. And there are people in this room who need to let go of their own righteousness and their own attempts to make themselves right with you. And they need to fall into trust. They need to lean. They need to put their hope in this truth today. I pray that you would give them the heart to do that. I pray that you'd give them faith, the gift of faith, so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus. And I pray all these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.